Hello, and welcome to Banking Transformed. I'm your host, Jim Roos, founder and CEO of the Digital Bank Report and co-publisher of the Financial Brand. The coronavirus created an unexpected and instantaneous growth of remote work across the entire business ecosystem and around the whole globe. Organizations have needed to adjust to changes in how work was conducted and how we viewed centralized workplaces. The question is, what will the future work look like after the coronavirus subsides? Just as importantly, how will engaging in business change as people decide to travel less, engage more, and engage in different ways? And finally, how will this impact privacy and even the environmental agenda in the future? We are fortunate today to be joined by Benjamin Pring, the head of Cognizant Center for the Future of Work. Ben is also the co-author of the best-selling books, What to Do When Machines Do Everything and Code Halos, How the Digital Lives of People, Things, and Organizations are Changing the Future of Business. In this episode, Ben provides a glimpse as to what the future of work and even the environmental agenda may look like now or five years from now. Welcome to the show, Ben. As a futurist and author who has researched the future work even before the COVID-19 crisis, obviously the recent events have changed all the dynamics around people, technology, social norms, and the rules of business, actually in all industries, not just banking. What have you seen to be the most significant changes since the beginning of this crisis, and, and how has business reacted to these changes? Yeah, no, thank you, Jim. Thanks for having me on the, on the podcast. No, it's, it's clearly uh, an incredible moment we're in, a really, really profound moment, probably the most significant disruption that, you know, I, as somebody in my late 50s, has ever lived through. And I, I dare say many people listening to this now have lived through as well. And I think it's going to take a long time for us to really figure out all of the implications of this, all of the change of this. We've had a stab at thinking through some of the initial uh, reactions in a new report we just put out called After the Virus that people can find up on the Cognizant website. And we looked across a range of things, technology, how we work, socioeconomic issues. This is going to clearly bring to the boil the sort of simmering debates about wealth inequality in many parts of the world that have been, uh, you know, bubbling up for a long time. But this could be a, a forcing function to bring them really to the boil. It's going to change how we work, clearly. It's going to change how we think about moving in the world, moving around in the world. It's going to change how we regard the world itself. I mean, you could arguably say that this is a a scream for help from a world, you know, that's groaning under the weight of expanding from, what, 1.8 billion people 100 years ago to 7.7 billion in 2019. So it's huge. And I think at the moment, we're just dealing with the first shock, the first waves of that shock. And, and particularly big businesses are many of them in financial services, in IT services, the world I live in, you know, we're all scrabbling around business continuity plans, disaster recovery plans. There's obviously, you know, legal issues in the wings waiting to come onto the main stage. And it's big. And for somebody like me, as you say, who's a futurist, I suppose in a way, my biggest takeaway so far is to remember that great quote, sometimes there are decades when nothing happens. And sometimes there are weeks when decades happen. And it feels to us like these are weeks where decades are happening and there's an acceleration into many of the ideas that we've been talking about at the Center for the Future of Work for many years, but which have seemed 
I don't know, too crazy, too wacky, too silly, too, you know, marginal, peripheral, experimental. Many of those ideas are accelerating right into the middle of the conversation now. And big businesses who've perhaps, you know, not wanted to take those things seriously or haven't had the bandwidth, the energy, the budget are going to have to take them seriously. And just to tee up a couple, <laughs> you know, just the way we're working now, people working from home. And how do we do that? How do we manage workflows in a more a seamless way, virtualized way. And then think about the implications in terms of real estate, the offices. Are people going to go back to those offices? Some people who've never worked from home before, you know, probably going to like this and they won't want to go back to those offices. So what do those offices look like in the future? And if you're a big mainstream bank and you've got huge banking infrastructure, physical infrastructure around the world, you have to think about that. And then you're going to have to think about what does the physical design and layout of those offices look like in a world where people are going to be anxious about social distancing and things like that. So you can really unpeel this onion a million ways. And we could probably talk about this till the cows come home. Well, it's interesting because you mentioned that sometimes it takes decades for things to happen. Sometimes decades happen in weeks. And you just look at the adaptability quotient. The first week that any region was shut down, all you heard about was, oh, my God, my kids, you know, the broadband's not working. I'm trying to do a podcast or I'm trying to do a video call and I have to yell to my kids to say, turn off the streaming <laughs> of the movie and all these things. And how do you deal with no daycare person because you can't have somebody outside coming into your house? But the second week, that all toned down and people are very quickly getting into the flow of things. And in very much the same way, institutions who had for years said, I don't think I want to let my employees work remotely because I don't think they'll get a full day's work in. All of a sudden, yeah, they could point to the first week and say it wasn't all that good. But I think since then, people have found a new way to engage on a corporate level that a lot of them are playing catch up with regards to security and a lot of other things. But adaptability has really been the key. When you're looking at the changes, which do you think will be long-term disruptions, maybe forever? And which do you think maybe are, are more short-term that may not continue or may be hard to continue? No, I agree with that entirely. And it's, again, very well put that, you know, the human genius for, for adaptation, as Darwin <laughs> laid out, is key to our evolution as a species, as individuals, as institutions, as societies. And, of course, it is the survival of the most adaptive. So this is a moment of adaptation for us all individually, collectively, and the people that come out of this on the right side of this incredible disruption are going to be the people that are able to adapt. And yeah, you're absolutely right. We're already seeing examples of that and having, you know, Zoom calls and, and, and virtual meetings and changing workflows and how we socialize in house party and TikTok and things like this. Yeah, people are doing it already. What that means in terms of, again, big businesses, big banks, what it means in terms of whether the elastic band, you know, springs back into exactly how it was before. It's hard to call at the moment. In the after the virus report, we sort of tried to tease out the two hypotheses you can see. One is that we never go back to the office or a lot of people never go back to the office. The other hypothesis, of course, is that everyone's going to be desperate to go back to the office because they're sick of being cooped up at home. And um, the social aspect of work, particularly for young people, is obviously crucial. I mean, so many people historically and, and even in, in an age of you know online dating 
meet partners, meet wives and husbands through their work. And, you know, particularly for young people, the need to be with other young people, to network, to create relationships, to figure out, you know, what they want to do with their lives, that tends to happen face-to-face in in the big cities. That's why historically people have always gone there and, and probably historically always will. If I was to net it all out, I think that the change will be very significant probably for 20%, 30% of people. I mean, if, it's actually interesting. I mean, as somebody who's been working for home for 25 years and has always been surprised that more people don't work from home because the actual percentage of people who work from home is very, very small. Even in a world where we've had the internet for 25 plus years, it's very, very small. It's probably in the range of 5 to 10%, variety of different estimates out there. I think probably for that number, call it 10% on the upside of people who regularly work at home, I think that number's probably now, you know, obviously way bigger. It'll revert to a new normal where that 10% is probably 25%. And that marginal difference, 15%, it's not like everything's gone in a kind of black and white shift from black to white. It's that an element of the margin has shifted. And that shift, as you know, financial planners will understand very well in any kind of P&L style or, you know, balance sheet modeling, marginal changes like that can be very, very significant. They can have significant kickers. And I think that that 15% shift will actually be very, very significant. Again, thinking about it from a branching infrastructure perspective, from a bourgeois white-collar office perspective will be very, very significant. Dismantling that 15% physically and then enabling that 15% virtually will be a huge, huge change. Yeah, exactly. And it's a doubling in very short order. If it was any bigger than that, I think the shock would be so existential, people wouldn't be able to cope with it and businesses wouldn't be able to cope with it. But I think, as you say, it's a doubling, so it's very, very big already. And this is happening in months. Yeah, and it doesn't even matter if you agree with the starting point. The reality is, I think the one thing that everybody can embrace is the fact that it is going to be a doubling factor. And that almost is true with every element as we're seeing the the awareness and the transformation issue. And, you know, in the banking industry, you know, Cognizant has done a lot of work in the banking industry and continues to do so. And we've obviously jumped the shark from this perspective of digital transformation. Firms that already had embraced digital transformation, are certainly doing better than those that have faked it. We're starting to see the ramifications in that with regard to the SBA loans. We're going to start to see the the ramifications when we're talking about digital account opening, those that really could do it all online versus those that require somebody to come into the branch. But from your research, how are firms now adjusting to needing to really become digital? And it's been a short period, but I think we're already starting to see some movements. And do you think that the survival of many financial firms may be at risk if they had not embraced digital from the standpoint of the broad sense of it? I absolutely think that's the case. And I think that's not just in the banking world. I think that's in lots of industries. But in the banking world, I think that's absolutely right. I think the companies who have continued to drag their feet, even while they've known this tsunami is here, it's, it's happening, it's been happening for many years, it's going to be a very tough road for them 
uh, head. I mean, I'll give you one one example, Jim. I mean, we, and we wrote about this. We, we wrote a book a few years ago called Code Halos, all about how businesses could use data to do mass personalization and customization of solutions, kind of inspired by what the Netflix of this world was doing. And this book is now seven or eight years old. Fast forward to today, many of the options and models that would have been available to a bank then and have been really pretty broadly deployed in other areas are still not widely used in mainstream big banks. I mean, here's the example. Many people recognize this. You apply for a mortgage, and I'm talking about now, not 2014 when it might have been science fiction to some people, but you apply for a mortgage now from your main checking banking provider. They have Every single piece of information about your financial health, which is instrumental to you know who you are as an individual, and yet they get you to fill out huge forms in triplicate, <laughs> huge amounts of financial information which they already have, and they put that burden onto you as an individual to do that. Why couldn't they? And some people have tried to do elements of this, and there's a veneer in many cases of how it's been done, but. Why couldn't they just literally pre-populate whatever application form they needed from all of the information that they have on you already and give you, the customer, a consent button? I mean, they could do this at the beginning of the process. Do you consent for us to do this? And if you don't want them to do that, fine, fill the form out yourself. But they could give you, the individual, that consent form, you say yes, the thing could be done in seconds, you know, anybody who listens to the podcast regularly knows this is my hot button that I'm going. <laughs> I, I get so frustrated. I say that my personal bank has had a relationship with me for 15 years. Yeah. And they know everything about me. Yeah. They know things about me that aren't even held by them. They know my mortgage payment. They know what my rate is because it's not hard to do the math when, you, yeah. when you're paying it. And yet... They never show me that they know me. And I went on a rant on Twitter this week around the fact that my business bank sent me a generalized email that said, by the way, you've requested some information around the PPP loans. And if you have an online bank account, do this. If you don't have one, do this. I'm going, you know that information. Yeah. And as people start getting their groceries delivered for the fourth or fifth week, and as the delivery service starts to realize certain patterns and starts to prompt you and say, by the way, based on your previous habits, you need this, it's going to educate the lay consumer as to what is possible with data. Yep. And it's going to make people inherently feel like every one of my business partnerships should be a concierge relationship that helps me be a better me. And, and when we're looking at this, when we're looking at digital transformations, we're looking at machines and robotics and all this. You know, you mentioned your book six years ago about Code Halos. And while the book was ahead of its time in many ways, right now we're dealing with a, a period where organizations are, are going to be under economic stress when we come back to normal. And they're going to have to consider the replacement of workers with regard to what technology, what data, what robotics can do. What do you think is going to happen there? And what will be the impact of that? Because while this could have been done over a short or a long extended period of time, if it wasn't for COVID-19, right now, those organizations that turn work back on are going to be under some significant financial strains and they're going to have to make the decision. I'm wondering, do you think they're going to, they're going to make those tough decisions? And if they do, what will be the role of government and business to make up for what will be even more significant income inequalities? 
Yeah, again, it's a great question. And, and again, it's a crucial rhetorical question for our times. And I can argue both sides of it. That, you know, On the one side, highly capitalistic business owners are going to use this as a moment to replace people with machines. The bugs that machines get pale in comparison to the bugs that humans get at the moment, don't they? <laughs> the other side of the coin, though, is, as you quite rightly say, there is going to be huge societal pressure, which will be driven through political election cycles to get people back to work. So that's the two sides of the argument. The other overlay on it is, in a way, not counter to what we were saying earlier on, but, you know, this is a moment of huge change. Necessity being the mother of invention, people are going to create these new virtualized models, adapt, as we were saying earlier on. The other side of that argument, of course, though, is that in moments of huge stress, the natural human instinct and the natural business instinct is to revert to business as usual, to go back to what you know rather than forge into a kind of unknown, uncertain future. So, again, I can argue both sides of that. Again, if I'm a betting man, I think that in the short term, there will be a lot of pressure to bring people back into the workforce and there will be market differentiation for people who do for big businesses. You can imagine next year, advertising campaigns, you know, big bank A, big insurance company B, you know, we've hired 20,000 people this year, blah, 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 and, the, and there being competitive differentiation from that. I think, though, what will be interesting and what, the, again, the progressive companies who can use this moment of disruption to get differentiation, to get leadership in their area, is not just to bring those people back and put them back to what they were doing exactly before, but let's use this moment to invent the future. Let's use this moment to invent better ways to do it. We've had this glimpse of how we can work virtually. Let's think about the workflow and the processes and the systems and the architecture that supports all that now that we've had that glimpse of the future. So I think you know, it's going to be a kind of one step forward, two steps back. It's going to be a hybrid, but it's certainly going to be an opportunity for progressive people in the banking world to completely re-engineer that mortgage application process, recognizing that it is no longer fit for purpose. And, and, and there's an opportunity to take a step function leap ahead, if you like. Given that then, both from a progressive human as well as a progressive organizational standpoint, what do you see as being the maybe renewed emphasis or brand new emphasis on career progression, career training, the whole idea of really preparing people for what is going to be a much more digital future? Do you see organizations making that almost like Amazon had announced for their 100,000 employees, making them more digital because it's a lot harder to find people in the marketplace to know those things? Do you see that whole personal development issue becoming a much more prominent element within organizations then going forward? Again, I think one of the defining qualities of our data age, and I think this will just be accelerated and accentuated going forward, is this increasing separation, differentiation between people who, companies who use leading edge technologies and tools and methodologies for advantage. I mean, you're talking about Amazon and those that struggle. And in a winner-takes-all environment, more and more of the rewards going to those leaders. I think you see this in retail, you're going to see it in education, you're going to see it in financial services, you're going to see it in every industry. And I think, again, for the progressive companies, the leading companies, access to talents, reskilling, 
bringing the best people along with you, either people you have internally or you, you hire. It's a talent war. I mean, it has been for a number of years now. It's a digital talent war. And the progressive companies, Amazon, wh whoever, are going to continue to invest aggressively in their best people, in, in upskilling their best people, hiring in next generation of digital talent. And that will be a key element of this virtuous circle of them continuing to do well. The companies who struggle to get that talent to keep that talent, to attract that talent, to upskill that talent, that to me is a path to irrelevancy, frankly. It's a path to continuing decline, continuing irrelevance. And of course, again, at this moment of huge stress when balance sheets are blowing up and demand is uncertain and cost bases are having to be readjusted as they will be in the next year, 18 months, you know, as in all bad times, the training budget, the education budget is always a you know, big tap target on the wall there. Let's close this thing down. Let's pause on all of these initiatives. And, and I'm afraid, but I'm pretty certain that a lot of businesses in the kind of muddled middle, as we call them, are going to shut down any sort of initiatives that they were putting in place in the last few years to you know, materially react to things that people like me were saying about having to get in digital talent. And it's just going to be another domino falling in a, a slow march, as I say, to irrelevance. Yeah, it's interesting because we've seen in our research, you've seen in your research, that the biggest banks and the smallest banks seem to have a greater adaptability and progressive nature to them. That middle group who, you know, it gets back to leadership and culture, probably more than anything else. But you get overwhelmed by the the size of the problem. But it was interesting because as you look at it now and you say, you know, those who did not move are being exposed right now. And, you know, if you don't change that whole perspective, and, and as you said, it all runs in, in sequence. You know, we find that those who are the furthest digitally transformed are using the most advanced technologies, are also the most likely to be innovators, are also likely to have the greatest satisfaction scores, and it all runs in sync. And, oh, by the way, they also make more money. But it's interesting because it also becomes an individual responsibility, which I think before the COVID crisis, it was great to talk about your ability to self-train and grow internally. But I think now that people are sheltered at home, I think many people are starting to realize that, you know what, I'm not too sure if I'm comfortable having the company I work for have complete control over my future. And I've now got to take a greater responsibility as to say, what is my next place and how do I get there as opposed to waiting for somebody, be it government, business or somebody else to define that for them? Um, do you think that's the case too? I agree with you, Jim, and I, I, I've been saying variations of that for a while, and I run into pushback from people who, uh, in a way, it's a, almost a P with a small P political statement to say something like that. And some people who don't share that notion of uh, that you just expressed kind of push back on it. And, and, and the way I've tried to balance that and keep both sides of the aisle happy is I point to AT&T. Some people know this story. It's in the public domain. They've talked about it quite a lot in the way that they regard training within their uh, organization. They, you know, basically put out an APB, you know, everybody in the company needs to upskill. Everybody needs to get, you know, comfortable with data and use these new tools and methodologies. The you know, world is changing, blah, blah, blah. All the stuff people like me have been saying for a while. They basically said, we, the corporation, will pay for that training 
But you, the individual, have to do that training on your own time, evenings, weekends, holidays, whatever. And I think that's a very balanced and mature, reasonable approach to say, as you say, that there is ultimately, you know, we all have personal agency. Ultimately, we're all individuals and we have to look after ourselves. But there is, you know, in addition, a corporate responsibility. And you can, again, be very cynical about it and say it's just kind of virtue signaling or whatever. But I think that you know, there is truly a corporate responsibility and, and there's lots of goodness in doing that. So I think that's a good marriage, a good way to think about it. But I completely agree with you, Jim, and I've been saying this for a while, that it's not as hard nowadays to do that upskilling, that training, as it was in the past. I mean, just one example I use, you know, go into YouTube, type in Machine Learning 101 and you see hundreds of courses from the best universities in the world, the best professors. You can do, you know, huge amounts of online education for free. Why wouldn't you? In some cases, you have to because my son is in his senior year of university and yeah. his availability of high-end courses in digital analytics and machine analytics is very difficult because a lot of those professors have gone into the private sector because they're getting paid a whole lot of money to use their skills. And again, you're going to have to take that upon yourself. Yeah, yeah. I think you can. You absolutely can. Again, the, some people will know this story. It always makes me amazed when I recite it, that one of the first, you know, prestigious online training platforms, Udacity, that people will know, Sebastian Thrun was a professor at Stanford who'd been at Google and he put up one of his data science classes online, all of the material online. This is a number of years ago now. This is five, six, seven years ago. Put it all up online for free. Anybody could take it. Hundreds of thousands of people did. And he found that the number one kid in his class, physically in the class in Palo Alto, ranked 134 against the global online cohort. And it was a light bulb moment for him when he was saying, you know, we're, we're filtering out everybody into this notion of exclusivity in this room. And we think these people are the best people in the world. And, and frankly, they're not. And I think that was a light bulb moment. It's, you know, people who know Udacity and Coursera and these other online platforms using them. And kids have figured this out way ahead of old folks like us. They're incredibly popular and people are doing them in, in incredible ways. And it's only a matter of time before it becomes credentialized in a more kind of serious way. So you don't need to go to Stanford to get a great job in Microsoft or Bank of America or Goldman Sachs. You can do online credentialing and if you've done, you know, you've done well in these online courses and these difficult subjects where there's no subjectivity to them whatsoever. It's not whether you've written a nice um, Elizabethan sonnet, it's whether you can actually, you know, debug Python. I think that's going to be a huge shift. And uh, again, people who know Scott Galloway from NYU may have seen his latest blog where he's talking about the impact of this on education and, of course, you know, his own livelihood. And it, I think, again, it's this, coming back to what we started off by saying, this, this, this moment of acceleration into a future, whereas if all you're doing as an executive, as a, a capital owner, is trying to hold on to the good times, the business as usual, to make it to you know your finish line, wherever the finish line is, cashing in your investing in peace or your 401k or whatever, that's just not a good model. It's just not a good business model. It's not going to give you a future. You've got to adapt. And if you don't, if your business model is just business as usual, I mean, it's, it's, it's a terrible time to be in business, I think.
Well, and it's interesting, too, because I think we're going to end up with this with a frighteningly high unemployment rate, an unemployment rate that's not totally driven by education level, driven by previous income level. It's going to be driven by what industry you're in and how they got impacted by COVID. And, and what's interesting is it's going to put a lot of people on notice that, you know what, now's the time you know, even if they've waited during this period, that I've got to do this because the government's going to be only able to, and, gov- and business is only going to be able to solve the problems for so many people. And now's the time I've got to do this. And I, I get get back to the very beginning of your conversation about the gig economy and the contractor economy and the work-at-home economy, that we're going to see at least a doubling and maybe even a tripling of what the size of that is. And most of those people are going to realize that they can't be willing just to sit back and wait for a check. And I, as you said, small p. And that's not meant to be anything other than a wake-up call for companies and individuals. Finally, one thing we've seen from the work-at-home or shuttered-at-home environment is that it really has brought a, a moment of truth and awareness for many, and it will be even more, to the whole issue of environmental impact. We've seen what has happened in the globe while everybody's had to stay at home, especially in China initially, but now globally, that being less mobile has had a dramatic impact on our environment, it, faster than any test could have ever proven. I mean, we were all doing all kinds of models saying, you know what, this is what could happen if we do X. And, you know, people debate those models forever, and rightfully so, because there was no real way to determine how fast the impact would be and how dramatic. I think one thing that we're going to see and have seen is that the impact was much more dramatic than anybody would have ever imagined. And we have a way of turning back the clock, as it were, with regard to what the environment looks like. How is that going to impact businesses and government's view of the future of work and how we maybe really push towards localized working and a greater work-from-home focus for the environment? It's a great uh, thought, Jim, in the report after the virus. I mentioned before we have a, a chapter in it called Gaia and Greta from the fringe to the mainstream. Yep. No, I think I think you're absolutely right. I think again this is a this is the sort of silver lining in this cloud at the moment that we are getting a window into how the world can heal itself if we give it a chance. I mean, even today, maybe people have seen the the pictures of New Delhi in India where the, the locals can, can see the Himalayas again, which they haven't been able to see for 30 years, and the pictures in uh, L.A. of uh, people being able to see the far mountaintops that they never, no, haven't been able to see for, for many years because of the smog. I was at uh, the World Economic Forum event in Davos in January, and you know, I've been going for quite a few years now, and it, it really struck me very, very forcefully then that discussions about environmental issues, which you know have been on the periphery, on the, on the fringe of big events like Davos for a number of years, really this year had finally broken through into the main tent, the main stages, all the keynotes. People were really taking this seriously now, and you know, St. Greta was the uh, the poster child for this, but it wasn't just her, and it was a lot of things around that. And I think, fast forward into this, what, three months later, we're just getting another window into the reality of, A, the damage we're doing, and, and B, the remediation that needs to be done and can be done if we can seize this moment. 
So I, I think, you know, wrapping a lot of the things we've talked together about today, Jim, that, you know, putting all of these things together and change, disruption, seizing the opportunity, working differently, I think a lot of it going forward, certainly through Davos next year and, and way beyond, I think will begin to orientate itself around exactly this, building a more sustainable future, sustainable in an environmental sense, sustainable in an economic sense, sustainable in a socio sense. And I think at the heart of this is going to be a push to make our buildings greener, to make travel greener, to stop traveling so much. It's going to be a push to make the world cleaner. We talk in the report about this notion of we're going to be moving into a clean regime and being conspicuously clean is going to be chic because we're recognizing that these bugs, you know, they're not going to go away, are they? They're going to keep coming and we can't give them the ammo that we're clearly giving them around the world at the moment. So, no, I, I think if you um, already kind of subscribe to the environmental agenda, I think this is an encouraging moment for people. And, and if you don't, if you're still cynical about it and you still kind of don't believe the science or you, you don't believe the, um, the need for speed here, I think that's going to be an increasingly unsustainable position to hold. And again, relating it back clearly as business people thinking about it in a business context, I think there will be competitive advantage to be aligned with sustainability and conversely, I think there will be huge competitive disadvantage if you're seen to be a stick in the mud holding out. Again, business as usual, I don't believe this change, I don't believe this disruption, leave me alone. I think that's going to be a very, very difficult position from a revenue, market cap, market perception, activist, investor perspective going forward. So, yeah, I mean, as I say, this might be one of the most important silver linings in this whole terrible period. And um you know, let's hope we can um, not let this terrible crisis go to waste. Ben, all I can do is say thank you so much. I am going to be calling you back for a, another visit in a couple of months because I think what's interesting, uh, being a futurist as you are, and, and we talked to a lot of these people on, on this podcast, is that the future is now and it's going to be interesting to see what sticks and what doesn't. But to your point, just on the environmental side, the ability to have discussion about what the impact of different things are. We have gotten a glimpse of what the future, what we thought may have been 40 or 50 years down the road, what it can be like. And it's going to be a matter of what are we going to be willing to accept or not accept going forward. Now that we have this beautiful testing environment, as bad as the situation is, where many of the, the variables have been held constant at a time when you, you're never able to hold the world constant. We've done that. We stopped the globe from turning for a while and have a glimpse of what we want the future to become and, and what our role in that is going to be. So again, thank you so much for being on the show today. It is a tremendous discussion and I'm looking forward to staying in touch. And, and I'm going to also make sure that everybody realizes, please, if you haven't caught during this podcast to do so, please download the white paper after the virus. It's in the Cognizant website under the Center for the Future of Work. It is an amazingly good view looking back from 2023. That team was led by Ben, but there's a whole lot of people that worked on that from Cognizant, and it's a great eye-opener. Thank you again, Ben. Thanks so much, Jim. Great talking to you. 
Boy, as I look back on that interview, what a great perspective, but interesting how the future of work really impacts so many things beyond work as we know it. Not only from a human aspect as to what are people going to have to do with the future and their relationship to the future work, but as a global society, how are we going to deal with governmental regulations? How are we going to deal with income inequality? How are we going to deal with health care if there's a great amount of people that are working from home? What's going to happen in the commercial real estate environment? And, and most importantly, how do we view our environment overall now seeing what it looks like if we shut down? Now, I'm not proposing we shut down forever, but I think what we're looking at is we're getting a glimpse as to what is possible and where do we go from there? Thanks for listening to Banking Transform. Just rated as a top five banking podcast. If you enjoyed today's interview, please be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to give our show a five-star rating. Also, be sure to catch my recent articles on the financial brand and check out our research that we are doing on digital transformation, retail banking innovation, digital customer experience, and financial marketing for the Digital Banking Report. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our producer, Leah Lawnbreak, and auto engineer, Sean Rule Hoffman. I'm your host, Jim Roos. Until next time, stay safe and stay healthy. Welcome, change agents, to your go-to place for stories that ignite your spirit, fuel your purpose, and connect us all. We believe in the incredible power of the human spirit, its boundless resilience, and the inspiration it brings to our lives. On the Driving Change podcast, we'll journey together through the extraordinary yet very relatable experiences of some of the most amazing people on earth. Our mission? That through these stories, we might just spark change within you and awaken a newfound motivation to harness your unique gifts to make a real difference in the world. So get ready to be inspired and join us on this incredible adventure. You can find the Driving Change Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you love listening to your favorite podcasts.